sweetness and joy and just like you were in the last meditation, right? Just radiating boundless love and joy and compassion and right to all beings, even those enemies and people you hate and right, right. No? <laughs> Who has enemies, right? Who has enemies? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not as easy as <clears throat> the retreat description sounds. This sort of like slightly false press release. Right? We don't say retreat where you really struggle with your obstacles and challenges to prying open the heart to feel a little kindness. <laughs> that doesn't sell too many, you know, retreats. So, you know, it's a practice. It's a training. Loving, being kind, being caring, being compassionate with ourselves, with others, with loved ones, with strangers, like, or, you know, or, to, all, to all, really, not so easy. So I want to speak a little about that tonight and um, just have a few different perspectives and, and uh, see where we go. So this is, um, so I first went to some children who I thought, you know, often children have a beautiful, natural radiance of heart. So sometimes, um, Love is when a girl, this is, these are all quotes from fourth and fifth graders. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> love is what's, this is good for this Christmas time. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. So it's very sweet. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. This is from a fourth grader. I'm not rushing into being in love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. <laughs> so some wisdom from the younger generation. <clears throat> so um, there's a great Gary Larson Far Side cartoon where we're in hell and Satan's in amongst all the fires and there's a bunch of new recruits coming in. And he's shouting to his mother, no, mom, no. And underneath the caption says, um, despite his um, repeated efforts to dissuade her, Satan could never prevent her mother from offering cookies and milk to the freshly accursed. <laughs> so she has a little tray of cookies and milk and little horns and apron, you know, little tail, and there she is offering. And you can't, the heart is unstoppable, right? However contracted, fearful, mean, or selfish, or however we can get in that reactive way, we also have this beautiful, innate, boundless, loving, caring, kind heart that comes out sometimes in surprises, sometimes in, you know, it pours out of us, other times it's more constrained, but it's there. Right? And these practices are reminding us of our, of our original nature, our true nature, our Buddha nature. It has as its essence, wisdom, kindness, love, awareness. And of course that gets obscured, it gets covered over. We, we, we forget, we lose touch with our innate goodness through conditioning, through suffering, through pain, through trauma, through misinformation about what we've been told. And these practices are ways to reconnect and rekindle that which is already within us. So when we're cultivating these practices of kindness, of presence, of awareness, love, 
It's not that we're getting something. It's not like we're plugging in our heart to the you know electric charger and you know getting a main line from something outside of ourselves. We're just remembering, resurfacing, rekindling that. So, and so we all have this ability to, to both, because it's innate, but we also have the ability to grow, to nurture, which is why the Buddha taught various practices, mindfulness practices, compassion practices, loving-kindness practices. Um, and what the Buddha was pointing to in a very specific way was the boundless, unconditional quality of the heart. That as much as we may know and experience and engage with conditional love, love that has conditions in relationships. We've known that, we know that. That the heart has this capacity also to be boundless, to be uh, uh, not wanting anything in return. There's a beautiful phrase from Catherine Hepburn. She says, love has nothing to do with what you're expecting to get, only with what you're expecting to give, which is everything. Or as another friend of mine puts it, he says, I would, love is, I want everything for you and nothing back from you. It's a generosity of heart. Right? It's a beautiful quality in that way. And, and in, in that, that pure, unconditional mode is, is more rare. Right? We, we're more familiar with a transactional kind of uh, relationship. <clears throat> so... Um, <clears throat> So it's interesting to, to, to reflect on what draws us to this practice. What, why would we cultivate this practice? One, because we you know, we lose touch with this quality. But maybe we get inspired by people that we know that are loving, that are caring. You know, I, I, um, uh, the Dalai Lama has been for me, and I'm sure for many of you, an, a shining example. You know, and here he is in his 80s, and he's still this unstoppable force of love, of compassion. Partly because he practices, you know, he, he still meditates for hours a day in the morning before any of us have gotten up and had coffee. <laughs> He's been on his cushion for three or four hours, getting up at 3.30 in the morning, cultivating compassion, cultivating kindness, right? But we're also drawn to, to cultivating the heart because of the pain in the world, the pain in ourselves, the pain we see uh, in loved ones and the pain that we see all around us. And what's needed is a tremendous quality of, re- of responsiveness, of heartfulness to the tremendous tragedy in the world. And also we might be drawn to this practice because the ways that we have lost touch with this burning uh, embers of kindness. And you know, going back to the conversation about the critic, one of the easiest ways to lose touch with our goodness is to listen to the critic. The critic that's been telling you for a long time, you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you're unlovable, or whatever message you've been uh, telling you. I remember teaching a retreat some years ago and there was a beautiful family, just very... Um, beautiful uh, two twins not twins, they were young uh, two teenage daughters and, and the mother and both daughters had gone through tremendous suffering tremendous self-hatred and loathing and they were, they were so clear to see their beauty and their brilliance but you know for conditioning and whatever psychological reason they had a really tortured life and it was so sad and I see this all the time when I'm working with students and clients and people so hard on themselves 
so mean, and yet it's so so easy from the outside to see this person's beauty and their goodness and their their good qualities and their gifts. Right? Sometimes called the imposter syndrome, where we where we believe that negative voice so much that we believe we're a fraud, we believe we're a freak, a fake. This is from um, that book on the critic. This is from uh, Meryl Streep, the most Academy award-nominated actor in history, said in an interview, why would anybody want to see me again in a movie? I don't know how to act anyway, so why am I doing this? That's the imposter syndrome. That's how we see ourselves, really inaccurately, really painfully. Right? And so the, the heart's longing to be seen for what it is, which is good, basically good. We have basic goodness. And I just came from trekking in Nepal. I mentioned this in my last talk and um, mostly along the Tibetan border and around a lot of Tibetan communities. And in, that, in, in Tibetan culture, you grow up with the view that you have basic goodness. You have innate goodness. You're Buddha nature. Like it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> You've got innate Buddha nature. That's your, your essence isn't original sin, but awake and wise and kind. So as we live our lives, as we, cult, as we grow on this path, as we walk whatever path of awakening that you're on, one of the things that we very quickly encounter is, is our suffering, is our challenges, is our distress, is uh, the ways that we've been harmed and carry wounds within us. And so it's essential that we learn to combine our mindfulness practice, our whatever, our wisdom practice, with love, with care. Because it's not easy to wake up. When we wake up, we think, oh, I'm going to wake up to love and light. No, we're going to wake up first to your suffering, to your delusion, to your unconsciousness, to your reactivity, to your judging mind, to your crazy mind, and that's painful. And so we need a lot of care because it's very easy to add judgment and ridicule on top of the pain that we encounter. When I was teaching a meta retreat some years ago back at IMS, which is a sister center to Spirit Rock Insight Meditation Society, and I remember uh, working uh, with a student who was a farmer, a young farmer, and um, she came in and said, oh, I, I'm having a really hard time with the practice. I've got this really hard rock in my heart. And I said, oh, let's, let's look at that. What's going on? She said, well, I just feel frozen, and my heart feels numb and shut down. And so we kind of did some looking at that, and I just asked her to bring a kind attention to the this this hardness in the heart, which she said, "Oh, it's like a walnut. It's like it's just this nut that's just closed. I feel scared and shut down to myself." And I said, "Okay, well, just see if you can be kind with that, kind with the painful rock, this walnut in your heart." And over the days, she did some loving-kindness practice and tried to extend warmth to herself, but particularly this place of closed shutdownness in it that was this walnut. And over time, she began to feel some tenderness, but also began to feel some of the pain that was causing the heart to close. And that's usually why our hearts close, because we feel pain, because we've, we've been harmed in some way or traumatized. And then as he was able to feel a little inkling of warmth and, and tenderness to, to, that, to, that, to that walnut, she said, oh, over time it began to um, open and this little seedling 
started to sprout out of the walnut, which was a sense of a possibility, the sense of, oh, I can see it's actually, it is possible to be kind to myself. It is possible to hold this hard, hardened heart with some tenderness. Right? Our hearts harden and close not because they want to, because they're in pain. Right? So it requires a lot of tenderness. So what happens when we first start to practice loving kindness? I know for myself, my heart was really frozen, just like this young farmer's. And um, it felt really dry. How many people for that in that meditation, the, the saying of the phrases felt kind of dry and rote? Anybody feel a little sort of, yeah, just maybe well, maybe happy. Yeah, whatever. What's for dinner? Um, Let's go on holiday. Okay, let's think about my Hawaii holiday. And, you know, because hard to be with a closed heart. And it took me years for that. It took years for that. It felt like an iceberg in my heart to thaw, to soften, to open, to become more fluid. Um, so often what, what and when we're in the meditation, often our mind just chooses distraction. We start thinking. We start spacing out. We start saying, may I be hippy and dippy and may I be uh, nappy and happy. And, you know, if you do meta practice a lot, you come up with the weirdest phrases because you get tired and you get distracted. So, So in the beginning, this practice can feel a little dry, a little boring, a little flat. And, um, and the phrases can feel a little empty. The heart can feel closed. Partly because we're not used to saying those kinds of things to ourselves. We're not used to wishing ourselves well. We're used to giving ourselves a hard time. We're used to criticizing ourselves. We're used to pushing ourselves or comparing ourselves to others negatively. We're not used to actually orienting to our own goodness. This is a great practice just to begin to orient to, oh, there's basic goodness here. How, how do I feel? How do I notice that basic goodness of heart? Maybe I look to my actions. You start looking to the ways that you're kind or caring or empathic or generous or feel gratitude or reach out to others. Right? We all have good instincts. Right? We don't live them. We don't all the time. We're not Mother Teresa necessarily or Dalai Lama. But we, we sit to start to orient towards that the way the heart naturally expresses its goodness. And not to listen to the critic. Or if you're Charlie Brown, not to listen to the voice that's saying, it's not okay to be you, Charlie. Or our conditioning. You know, I grew up in England. And um, if you, I remember coming to California in England, if someone says, how are you? You say, oh, not bad. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm all right. You know. And I came to California and I said, oh, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm fantastic today. Really, just really on top of things. And like, wow. And if you said that in England, you'd be like, oh, you're so full of yourself. <laughs> too big for your breeches, you know, too big for your boots. You know, so there's different cultural norms and conditioning has ways of, you know, suffocating <laughs> or at least putting the blanket or religious conditioning 
you know, some people, and often I find this, uh, especially people who've had Christian conditioning um, or Catholic conditioning in my case, the idea of wishing oneself well is sometimes viewed as selfish. It's called self-cherishing, which is a negative thing in, the, in, in some church teachings. And so somehow it's not okay to wish ourselves well. There's a beautiful phrase from the Buddha. He says, I searched the world high and low and I found not, no person or no thing more deserving of my own love than my own self. That there's no one more deserving. No one less deserving either. Right? Everything, everyone is equal of the same love. Right? But we're not less than or we don't omit ourselves out of some holy idea but actually include ourselves because we, of course, you know, are worthy recipients of our love and kindness. So what, um, why the, these heart practices that the Buddha talked about, the, the four heart practices, loving kindness, metta, compassion, karuna, mudita, appreciative joy of others, celebrating the joy of others, and upeka, the balanced heart. And the reason why they're such powerful practices is because when you cultivate them, rather than, as I said, swoon in boundless love, you, begin, you, you come up against the obstacles and the challenges and the limitations and the barriers to love. You get to see what's in the way, whether it's conditioning or views or the ways the heart's closed. And I'm going to talk about that. And as painful as that can be to see the obstacles, it's also the good news. It's a beautiful piece of writing um, this is from uh, Francois Fellin I, I love this this piece of writing he's a 16th century um, archbishop and he's talking about light being a metaphor for awareness and he says as light increases we see ourselves to be worse than we thought we are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole sh- swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings. We never could believe that we'd harbored such things as we stand aghast as we gradually watch them appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them grows brighter. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. We only perceive the malady when the pure cure begins. So when we see the malady, in this case, whatever way our heart is closed, that's good news, as painful as it is to feel and see and sense the heart closing, we can then begin to understand, oh, why does my heart close around certain people or in certain situations or when I'm in the spotlight or when I'm home alone or when my relationship is, is challenged or whatever. This is from Rumi. He says, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you've built against it. So to, to reflect for yourself, where, where are the barriers within yourself that you've built against the heart, against love, against kindness? You know, and often this is out of our conditioning, right? We've all had a particular history to get to this point in time, some of which has been supportive for the heart, some of which isn't necessarily so supportive. You know, uh, the, the, the myth of romantic love and the idealization of romantic love and the way this culture uh, 
holds that as like the pinnacle. It's a great quote from Margaret Anderson. She says, in real love, you want the other person's good. In romantic love, you just want the other person. It's not quite as that, you know. But it has a flavor of that, right? It's not as open-handed, generous. Right? There's a condition on it, as in, stay around and I'll love you. <laughs> if you don't stay around, I won't. Or the sense of tribalism. We, we, we can see, so the, the orientation of the meta practice, we start with those nearest and dearest, self, loved ones, friends, and then we extend to strangers and difficult people and all beings. And we're familiar to some degree with loving our friends and family, and you know, but it's a small circle of influence. And the, the orientation of this practice is how do we extend our hearts beyond that familiar, safe, comfortable zone to strangers, to people we don't like, to people who aren't in our tribe, who don't look like me, people who I other, people who I'm afraid of, We, see, we easily encounter how our love has strings to it. There's a kind of an agenda to it. has certain conditions upon it. Or we don't love those who, or extend our hearts to those who have different political views to us. Or even don't support the same football team or basketball team. Right? Where I grew up in northern England, Newcastle, we would there would be pitched battles of thousands of people running through the streets uh, beating up the other supporters that's not matter <laughs> that's called being attached to one's tribe in this case a soccer team that somehow was justification for therefore beating somebody else up who had a different preference In this, these political divided times, it's, you know, notice for yourself how hard it is to extend love to whoever it is is on the opposite side of your political spectrum. Right? This country is burning up with polarity and division and othering and blaming and hating and rejecting the other, whether it's immigrants, whether it's a particular uh, political affiliation, Sometimes it's hard to extend love when we see to others, to people who, who are causing harm to others. I remember walking in Nepal and I was having a lot of mis- misanthropic feelings towards humanity because here I'm walking in this beautiful wilderness and I looked over the edge of the trail and it was a waterfall of trash. Plastic bottles, plastic chip wrappers and all kinds, you know, just all kinds of plastic weights that was going to be washed down in the winter rains and be washed down into the rivers that will make its way out into the Pacific and be eaten by albatrosses and turtles. And I was having a lot of difficulty seeing that and then feeling goodwill towards my fellow travelers who were, were all contributing to that waterfall of trash. It's hard to see the ways that we harm each other or the planet and keep our heart open with love. 
That's where we also need wisdom and equanimity to understand the deeper causes of these things. We're all suffering from ignorance. We're all part of a system that is hurting and causing suffering. Or the ways that our mind, instead of wishing well, orients towards nitpicking, fault-finding, judging. Joseph Goldstein, who's one of the founding teachers of the Insight Tradition, has this story. He was on uh, an Insight retreat in, in IMS, and he, was, he found a perfect place in the dining room that he could see everybody walking into the dining room and notice he had a judgment about every single person. Walk too slow, walk too flat, fast, bit scruffy, ate too much, ate too little. When we're judging, when we're busy judging, we all like to, we kind of have a sort of perverse pleasure of judging people because it makes us feel a little superior, a little better than, props us up momentarily. It's not exactly, if you really feel into that, it's not exactly love. <laughs> it doesn't exactly create connection and empathy and whatnot. Mother Teresa says, if, you, if you're judging people, you have no time to love them. Sometimes we don't cultivate the heart because we think well, there's some notion that the heart, cultivating the heart is, will be, create weakness. It's, it's soft. And I hear this when I teach these practices in companies. I don't do that, do that so much anymore, but I've done a lot of that. And managers have a fear, well, if, I, if I'm too kind, if I'm too compassionate, I'll be soft. People will walk over me. I won't be able to make the, the difficult decisions. It's not actually true. It'll actually make you help those make those decisions more compassionately, but it's not about softness. Sometimes it's hard to extend the heart when we're afraid. I spend a lot of time in the backcountry. When I'm when I first came here and I was backpacking alone and you know, hearing bears and all the other predators that you might hear when you're in your tent and of course it's probably a squirrel really, but you know, it seems sounds like a mountain lion breathing, you know. <laughs> And something starts licking the tent. You're like, oh no, they're starting on the candy wrapper and then they're going to go for the main course. And it's a deer. But you know, you've, the mind goes to the worst thing. Hard to extend love. And the Buddha originally taught loving kindness practice to help his monks deal with being afraid of the spirits and, and uh, you know, bandits and whatnot in the forest. Because when we, when we cultivate kindness and love, it's a direct antidote to the, the, the agitated, uh, startled, fearful nervous system. I often teach it as a practice at night when you wake up startled in fear or anxiety. Met is a very soothing practice, soothing on the heart, soothing on the nervous system. This is from the poet Hafez. How did the rose ever open its heart? and give to this world all of its beauty. It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So the heart felt the encouragement of light against its being. So what are the obstacles to your own heart? What, 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 what particular flavor, story, challenge, prevents your heart from being open, from being caring. Right? What are the ways you constrict, contract? Of course we do, because we're human. It's part of the human experience. We expand, we contract, we're afraid, we're generous, we're anxious, we're loving. Right? Where, where, where does the heart do this? Right? 
And what's to be understood when the heart closes? What's to be what's to be learnt, right? It's easy to judge ourselves or reject ourselves. Oh, I'm so mean, I'm so you know, ungenerous compared to so and so. So well let me take a look at that. Why is that? What's what's this what's causing that? What do I feel like I'm getting from that? So but the good news is you know, just like neuroscientists are discovering the basis of our brain's hardwiring is neuroplasticity. We have this ability to change uh, our brains and our habits and behaviors depending on what we pay attention to, depending on how we pay attention. Same with our heart. And we also have millions or billions of neurons in the heart subject to the same laws of neuroplasticity. As the Buddha said, what we, what the mind and the heart frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the heart. And so when I was in Nepal and I was hiking and I was noticing my mind at times had a lot of negativity towards people because of various things I mentioned, but other things, um, I noticed how metta was a, a guardian of a guardian of the heart and the mind. I, I would switch from feeling reactive and judging and negative to just wishing well, wishing myself well because I was suffering in that moment, wishing hikers well, wishing the villagers well, wishing the land well, wishing the beings downstream well. And it's just a beautiful way to shift the attention, right? Shift the attention from nitpicking, fault-finding, judging, to, oh, may you be well. May you be happy. It's a little stealth meta. You're just giving someone a little high-five without them noticing it, and it's a win-win because you feel better. Maybe they feel something, who knows. But you're certainly transforming your own heart. It takes a moment when I'm in traffic. Get, you know, hit traffic, say, so, oh, you people. Why are you always leaving when I need to get somewhere? And I, look, and I look in my mirror and I go, oh, I'm traffic. We are traffic. It's, we always think traffic is you lot. <laughs> right? We're traffic. We're part of the problem. Right? We just blame everybody else. Oh, get out of my way. Oh, may you be happy. May we all get to where we're going on time. May we not be so stressed when we're in traffic, right? Just relaxes the nervous system, relaxes the heart. So being so close to Tibet, I was thinking at stories of Tibetans that I've heard about and also ones that I've met and even taught with here that we had this amazing uh, Tibetan monk um, here when we were in the old hall, the trailer, years ago. And um, he'd been imprisoned by the Chinese um, for being a monk and had been uh, served at least 20 years in, in really hard hard conditions, harsh conditions in, in, in a Tibetan, in a Chinese jail, tortured and, and really mistreated badly. And... Um, and when asked what was his mind like, what was his practice like, he says, well, you know, I do my meditation practice and I do a lot of compassion practice for the jailers. I knew that the jailers were really creating a lot of negative karma for themselves and so I practiced compassion. And I've heard that from nuns and I've heard that from various people who, Tibetan practitioners who've been imprisoned. And it speaks to the tenacity of the heart, right? That even in the most wretched painful, awful conditions that there's some way the heart, because of that training, that mind and heart training, they're able to not 
contract into hatred. Right? Just in the same way Nelson Mandela was kept this magnanimity with his jailers and developed friendship with his jailers. You know, in 27 years in a very harsh prison in Robben Island. So, so it's good to just notice and reflect on oh, this, this uh, of the potential and the capacity of the heart, and also to reflect on that the way our circuitry is designed, our neural circuitry, that when we're kind, when we're caring, when we're generous, when we're loving, it feels good. Right? We have this sort of biofeedback circuitry that encourages being nice. Because it feels good when we're generous. It feels good when we're caring. And so it's good to notice that. Like I noticed that a lot this weekend. This being around family and it's been a very sweet, loving time. So oh, it feels good to love. I know it sounds like duh, yeah. But actually to reflect that it's, you know, and that's why it's, you know, these, every religious tradition speaks to the value of service, the value of extending one's ambit of concern beyond oneself to helping and caring for others. It's one of the definitions of genuine happiness that positive psychology studies is when we cease to be so self-absorbed and can extend ourselves with others, whether it's through parenting or through service or some generous orientation, it creates a sense of well-being. So I want to say a little about um, the extending metta to oneself because, you know, I think most people I'm working with and you lot and, you know, most people I meet, you know, people are basically good in my experience. And we're basically fairly decent to each other, for the most part. Kind, caring, loving. Someone falls down in the street, you're, most, you're pretty likely to help them pick them up. People at work, strangers, generally, you know, kind, considerate, hold doors open, let people cut in traffic and all that. And we basically have expressed that goodness of our hearts. And it seems much easier for us to do that with others, sometimes easier to do it to strangers than, say, our intimate nearest and dearest. But we still can, and we still do. But with ourselves, not so much. Not so kind. Not so accepting. Not so loving. Not so patient. Not so forgiving. Right? Are you getting what I'm talking about? Is that, is that resonating with your experience? That... You know, we all know we're often our own worst critic. You know, in, in, the, tradi- in the traditional practice, you extend loving kindness to a benefactor, a friend, a loved one. No, benefactor, friend, a neutral person, an enemy, and then all beings. We're mostly in the enemy category. Because <laughs> we, we fight with ourselves. When I started this practice, I was 19, and I had tremendous self-hatred. I read my diaries, from diaries, my journals from that time, and it's really depressing and sad that I had such a torturous, critical mind, and I was ruthless with myself and my what I saw as my flaws and my personality and my weaknesses or deficiencies or vulnerabilities, really, is what I was critical of. 
And I fortunately, when I was 19, I learned mindfulness practice, mindfulness meditation, and I learned loving-kindness meditation, this practice we just did 35 years ago. And um, I was really happy that I got taught that because I think I would have hated myself to now and been judgmental and I wouldn't have written this book on the critic because I just would have been lost in it. You know, I probably would have been depressed, quite depressed. Um, so I feel tremendously grateful that this practice, you know, even though it was hard and I didn't feel that much at the time, at the beginning, I had, tr- I had some faith with my teachers to just keep doing it. I just did it every day, every day. And I moved into retreat center, did it every day, did it many times a day. Eventually started doing retreats, just doing that. And over time, you know, that little, you know, meta wishing oneself well is a tiny little bucket, tiny little drop in the ocean. And it's a big ocean. Beginning doesn't necessarily have too much influence. You know, but over time, those drops grow into volume and starts to having some influence, some impact. And I began to not listen to my critics so much and began to orient to say, oh, actually, I'm not such a horrible person after all. I do have some decent qualities. Um, I'd spend a lot of time in nature. Nature was one way I also was able to come to a sense of feeling more acceptance because nature is often extends that sense of benevolence and kindness. It's a beautiful line from Mary Oliver where she says, um, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to, re- to, to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. sense that we're welcome here, that we're part of the earth. We're not an aberration, we're not a problem, we're not a mistake. Bless my parents, they said I was a mistake. (laughs) Don't say that to your kids, no one's a mistake. The conception may have been an error, (laughs) maybe a lack of contraception may have been an error. But the actual conception was not a mistake. The birth was not a mistake. <laughs> so, uh, as I mentioned in the in the meta practice, perhaps we can send uh, direct wish kindness for our body. Right? So you can do a body scan and you just wish your body well. Right? Many of us have very troubled relationships with our body. It's not enough. It's too old. It's too thin. It's too fat. It's too whatever it is. Can we bring this unconditional loving relationship to our body? What would that be like if you looked in the mirror and said, it's okay, it's good enough, it's fine just as it is. I love you just as you are. May I love and accept myself just as I am and not compare ourselves to whatever cultural view of how our body should be at the age we are and accept ourselves as we are. Bodies are amazing, wondrous, beautiful things. However they are, whatever shape and size and color and age. May I love my body as I am. Henry David Thoreau said, I stand in awe of my body. I stand in awe of my body. What would it be like to look in the mirror 
to undress, to look in the mirror and say, I stand in awe of my body. This body is an amazing thing. All the amazing wonders that it does. I took a hike in the rain today in Muir Woods and got soaked. My clothes were soaking wet and it was cold. And the skin's kind of waterproof. And it dries. And it's kind of amazing. You know, clothes all wet and damp and smelly. Skin's dry, it's fine. It's an amazing thing called body skin. Like what an amazing thing. You're breathing. It's, it's like Gore-Tex. <laughs> but it's free. <laughs> and it covers your whole body. <laughs> it's the biggest organ. And it's free. It beats Gore-Tex, hands down. <laughs> So what happens is we start cultivating self-love, self-kindness. One thing that happens uh, is we're able to start setting healthier boundaries. Healthier boundaries with ourselves, healthy boundaries with others, because there's a sense of self-care. We start listening to ourselves. We say, okay, I'm not going to do the second pint of Ben and Jerry's. I'm just going to stop at a pint. Or whatever you know your boundary is. <clears throat> we start to align more with a, with a kinder voice than the critical voice. I have a student who um, this is perfect for this time of year. She says she so she lives in Berkeley and she's used to look at the the squirrels in the garden. She would notice that they would fatten up in the winter and they would get leaner in the spring. And they fatten up because they grab the acorns and nuts and you know, build up the winter fat to help them through the winter and then then get leaner in the spring. And she said, I notice I do the same thing. I get fatter in winter. I'm more sedentary. I eat more. It's colder, comfort food. But then in spring, I start exercising and I shed my fat. I don't judge the squirrels. (laughs) And then at some point, as she started doing a little more loving kindness practice, she was like, oh, of course, I'm just part of nature. Of course I do that. It's okay. Enjoy the nuts. A friend of mine who's just about to release a book by this title, uh, her practice, her therapist, she had a, was very critical with herself in her practice. And in the morning she would start, she'd wake up and start thinking about all the things that were wrong with her and all the things that she didn't like. And that can be a familiar morning kind of alarm clock. Very annoying. And um, so her therapist said, why don't you say, when you wake up, just say to yourself, Rick, as kindly as you can, just say, Good morning. Good morning. Like, hi. How are you? Good morning. So she starts saying good morning. And at some point, I think when she started doing this in front of the mirror the, the, in the bathroom, she added, good morning, I love you. Good morning, I love you. Right? And at first it felt a little sort of fake and like mm, cheesy. And at some point it started to feel more genuine. It's like, oh, good morning, yeah, I love you. She's now releasing a book called Good Morning, I Love You. <laughs> Comes out in May. I'm doing a little promo for Shauna Shapiro. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great book. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, one of the things that the meta practice does is it helps us be a little more kind with our humanness. So the, the critic um, basically doesn't it's th- it th- the, the, the view of the critic is it's not okay to be human. It's not okay to be who you are. It's not okay to have foibles. It's not okay to be imperfect. It's not okay to make mistakes. Well, guess what? We're human. 
We're imperfect. We make mistakes. It's part of life. It's not a problem unless we make it a problem. But the critic, of course, does. So, um, so what I found with meta practice is it just helps us meet our humanness, our messy, complicated, neurotic, vulnerable humanness, and beautiful humanness. So I want to share a story. This is from my new book, From Suffering to Peace. Um, And it's a story about my dad, um, who I blame for getting me into meditation because he took me to a transcendental meditation class when I was 16. It was a family thing. Um, His doctor told him to do it because he was going to have a heart attack and he needed to chill out. Um, And that started me on my meditation journey. Anyhow, fast forward uh, many years later, and we're in a pub because that's what you do when you're in England with your family, you go to the pub. So uh, I'll just read the story. On a recent trip to England for the Christmas holidays, I had an unusual frank talk with my dad. We were in a lively English pub full of holiday cheer. And after chatting, actually, it's just a backstory. So we were, we were having Christmas at my sister's in England, and there was been sort of, sort of some drama. My dad stormed off and went to the pub, and I thought oh, I should go see how he's doing. So I ended up in the pub. So, um, anyhow, so we're chatting away about various things, and then he started saying, he started sharing about how much pain he still carried inside. My father had a wretched childhood. He was born out of wedlock in 1939, unable to be raised by his mother. He was fostered by a multitude of families until he was seven. He said he lived with so many foster parents, he forgot the names of his caregivers. All this happened during the six years of World War II, when England was focused on surviving the war against Germany, and there was little attention or time to spare for a little foster child. As children do, my father internalized his miserable predicament by assuming something must be fundamentally wrong with him. He developed scars of unworthiness and deep shame. This left him hungry for love that he hoped would mitigate the whole of deficiency that lived in his heart. Being so young, he had not learned the skills and coping mechanisms needed to deal with such pain. The tragic pain from those early years remained with him all his life. He'd found many ways to hide it, to ignore it, to drink it away, but like a shadow, it was always close to hand. Now in his later years, the pain was tugging even more in his heart. He felt a desire for resolution and healing and felt remorse for the ways he'd acted out from the pain. Yet he was unsure how to resolve the painful emptiness inside. During a conversation in the pub, my father took the risk to reveal this vulnerable, hurting place to me. It was a beautiful moment of intimacy, and I had tears in my eyes as he talked of the pain he'd held in for so long. I reflected to him from my own struggles that the only way forward is through the pain. I reminded him that he had to turn towards that scared, lonely, rejected boy inside and give him the same love that he was clearly able to give to his family, children, and friends. To heal, I suggested he hold his wounded heart with compassion, feel the tender pain, and meet it with kindness and forgiveness. I also offered him some some resources. One suggestion was to do an eight-week mindful self-compassion course developed by Kristen Neff. Coincidentally and unbeknownst to us, that exact class was being offered by a trained mindful self-compassion teacher the following week in a nearby village in southern England. They live in the country in the middle of nowhere, and the fact that there was a person trained in this modality in this tiny hamlet next to his village was remarkable. Courageously, my my father leapt at the chance and began a profound self-healing journey. Afterwards, he spoke to me of the powerful practices of mindfulness and compassion he'd learned from the course. He felt less alone, felt empathy for his fellow participants who were also going through their own difficulties. He understood that healing a lifetime of pain, rejection, and unworthiness would take time and understanding and patience, 
but he'd taken the important first steps on that journey. His heart was beautifully tender. His heart was beautifully tender and open in a way it'd never been. This is the gift of our wounds in which healing them opens us like nothing else can. So I love that story. One, because it's my dad. <laughs> and two, because you know, he carried these, these wounds, these pains for you know, a long time. You know, 79 years. And, um, and had you know, been introduced to the practice of loving kindness and compassion and mindfulness. And uh, he actually called me up after the eight-week course, and I was teaching in Mexico. And I said, Dad, why are you calling me in Mexico? It's expensive. He said, oh, I just finished this course, and you know, I know it's just the beginning, but it's really been transformative. And I, w- I went home in April, and uh, we meditated together, and it was just incredibly sweet and touching to, to just to feel the, the, how simple these practices are, but also very profound And then over time, you know, we metabolize that within ourselves. It starts to influence our actions. It starts to influence our behavior and our choices, uh, how we relate in the world. It's a beautiful poem by Mary Oliver. I couldn't find it for tonight, but it's, a, um, it's about ants. She says, um, uh, my grandmother, uh, having only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, would in the winter months lay newspaper uh, outside the porch door uh, so, she said, the the ants could feel warm in winter. And what would I be, uh, what would I be like that with only, what would I be like that with only half my mind what would it be to be like that with nothing left but love? You know, and you see that in, in, in certain people who do, who've cultivated love and kindness in the old in the in the later years, even you know people who've you know suffering from dementia and other cognitive decline. If the heart's been cultivated, if the kindness and love has been cultivated, that's what remains often. This beautiful warmth. And then we start to bring it in different situations. Here's a story that I think is a lovely expression of that. So this is in from a hospital um, from Richard Selzer. So the doctor's in uh, a hospital room and um, there's a young woman uh, in bed, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy and clownish. Tiny twig of her facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her face, has, face, her mouth has been severed. She will be thus from now on. A surgeon, I'd followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her husband is in, also in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me and private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth who gaze and touch each other so generously? The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. 
Unmindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. Right? That's love, right? Attunement, sensitive, responsive, unconditional, not contracting in the face of, in this case, a twisted mouth, but responding with, you know, beautiful kindness. It's from Rilke. From one, for one human being to love another, this is perhaps the most difficult of our tasks, the ultimate last test and proof, the work for which all other work is but preparation. Sound familiar? <laughs> this is the hardest of our tasks, right? to love one another, right? especially the ones closest to us, the most challenging sometimes, right? the nearest and dearest, right? to extend our kindness to their foibles or the way they irritate us or push our buttons. The beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves we find in them. How is it to love others just as they are? Friends, family, spouse, children, strangers. How do we accept and love others as they are? This is a great challenging task. Because we have our preferences, we have our desires, we have our wants, we have our needs. And then we have, you know, our spouse or our parents or our children who are not as we would maybe would like them to be. So we, we, we practice extending love to ourselves as the cup overflows. It becomes a little easier to extend that same warmth to others to loved ones, to strangers. Most of the world is strangers. How do you relate to strangers? How do you relate to the person on customer service working in some customer service warehouse in Indonesia or India or the Philippines or you know Kansas? Do we extend kindness and patience or do we get irritable and full of our first world suffering and get, you know, impatient. Maybe we do. Can we be kind with ourselves when we get reactive and impatient? Because we do. I have a friend, Nipun Mehta, who's a wonderful, beautiful, loving, generous human being. He's a founder of servicespace.org, which is basically organization dedicated to generosity and doing wonderful service in the work world. And he shares a story that started on, one of the things that started him on his journey of, of generosity was he was in India, he's Indian, and he's visiting families on the back of a motorbike and he's going around the villages with his uh, cousin or his friend and um, he gets sick, so he gets off the bike, he's being sick, and this uh, stranger bicycling up this dirt road sees that he's sick, gets off his bike, pulls out a lemon from his pocket, pulls out a knife from his pocket, cuts the lemon in half, 
offers half the lemon to Nippun because that's helpful for nausea, puts the knife in there, the half the lemon back in his pocket and cycles off. Doesn't stay around, doesn't, doesn't wait for a thank you, but just, oh, there's someone suffering. Here, take this. Right? That's the heart, responsive and kind when it's unbridled. And then we can learn to also extend our hearts to those who are more difficult. As I mentioned earlier, all of the other ways, all the people that we don't extend our love to, people we're in conflict with, people who challenge us politically, socially, whatever. What's it like to extend our love to those who we're in difficulty with? This is a great practice. I often think about this when I'm in conflict with people and I'm about to meet with them, I'll do love and kindness for them. Do love and kindness for myself. It softens my own heart, makes the conflict much more, the the communication, the contact much more workable. There's a story, I think it's in one of the books, uh, the story from the the horrific um, uh, church shootings in Charlottesville. And there was one particular uh, woman who was incredibly, uh, uh, just her, the, the depth of her love was, you know, she'd lost her mother. And they're in, in the courtroom and, and uh, the victims have a chance to speak to the killer who was very, very unremorseful and very, very entrenched in his racist hatred. And um, uh, this, uh, the mother of uh, this uh, the daughter of this, uh, um, whose mother was killed, she got up and said, I forgive you. How, how, despite how atrocious and awful your actions are, I forgive you. And it's remarkable the capacity that the human heart has to extend even in times of absolute loss and grief. So one of the beautiful things about matter when we cultivate and open the heart is we start to feel a sense of uh, non-separation or commonality or connection. Right? There's a beautiful word in Burmese. They talk about metta as when two drops come together and they become one. There's a, there's a phrase in Burmese, I forget what it is, that the, 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 the metaphor for, for metta is this, is this two-drop connection. That with 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 when the heart is open, we dissolve the sense of separation. That becomes less of a sense of me, less a sense of you, less othering. And of course, this world needs a lot more of the dissolving of separation, the dissolving of othering. This is from Gandhi. He says it's easy enough to be friendly to one's friends, but to, to but to befriend the one who regards himself as your enemy is the quintessence of true religion. The other is mere business. I don't know if the other is really mere business, but the quintessence of true religion. To love, to regard, to befriend one's enemies. What would that be? If you think about someone who you make as an other in your life, who do you other in your life? I bet you other somebody. We all other somebody. We all have our tribe and there's the non-tribe. What would it like to extend the heart with some kind of warmth? Doesn't mean you need to take them in fatigue. Doesn't mean you have to become friends. But to actually not close the heart. 
a line from the Sagadata, Nim Karoli Baba, who when asked about how do you, how do I deal with my enemies, he said, whatever you do, uh, don't let anybody out of your heart. You may never come to like them or love them, but don't let them out of your heart. What would it be like to have that true non-separation? And if that's more accessible, that's more likely to lead to compassionate action, to responsiveness, to engaging the heart, to actually helping in some way. I have a dear friend in England who um, the, he's been a, a long-term practitioner and teacher and meditator, um, and um, he's decided the best use of his service, even beyond Dharma teaching at this point, is to actually... Uh, do climate justice work and um, he's got involved very significantly in, in Extinction Rebellion in London um, as a way of, again coming out of the deep sense of love of the earth and all that's being harmed as a result of the ecological and climate crisis so how do we how does love become an orienting principle, how do we let the kindness, the warmth engage us move us to act in some way, to be kind to those around us, to be caring to those in need. The Buddha in you know has pointed to the the boundless qualities of the of the potential of the heart to love boundlessly. And we can intimate that and taste that at times. It's a powerful force. And we, you meet and know people who have that the dynam the dynamos in the world. So I'll close with a couple of quotes. One is from uh, Nisargadatta. So, and again, he's coming back to this idea of how we pay attention and what we pay attention to and how it can incline the heart. He says, I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has, which is a way of feeling that sense of non-separation. I become the inner witness of the thing I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. This ability to put myself in other someone else's shoes, to feel and see and sense life from their perspective, love. You may give it any name you like. Love says I'm everything. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Between the two, my love flows. And so, you know, it's important to know the scope and the boundless of boundlessness of the heart, of your own heart. This is your own heart I'm talking about, not someone else's, not the Dalai but your heart, your own capacity to love and to care. And it's also important what we do in this moment, in this moment with this body, this next person, this next situation that we're in. I'll close with some words from Desmond Tutu who said, do your little bit of good wherever you are, it's those little bits of good put together that can overwhelm the world. So let's just sit for a moment. And just again, sense your heart. Sensing your own goodness. Think about one thing that you may take from this reflection of loving kindness this evening, how you might extend yourself with heartfulness to yourself, to others, 
strangers, loved ones, the planet. Beings everywhere know the goodness and benevolence of their own heart. So we ran out of time for questions, but thank you for your attention. Um, as I said, I'll be here on Friday. I have some information on the table about books. I have a teacher training coming up, which you may be interested in, and mailing list if you're interested about my work. And otherwise, just lovely to be with you, and I won't see you till next year. So happy holidays and be well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.